0: This is episode 16 of the Soul of Sensitivity podcast. I'm Anna Holden, a professional intuitive and energy healer. I help highly sensitive people dig into the shadows of their soul to access their gifts, reclaim their purpose, and get intimate with their ultimate truth. I also teach intuitive development and mentor emerging healers through my Sacred Rebellion programs. Each week on the podcast, I explore different aspects of living a soulful, sensitive life. I'll bring you stories of other sensitive, creative pioneers, as well as my own thoughts, teachings, and tools. This is not the beginner's guide to sensitivity, but rather the place for sensitive souls to gather up their courage and pioneer their way into a life of personal freedom and spiritual sovereignty. Your sensitivity is sacred. Are you ready to live that way? Hi everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Sabrina Kimball about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Now some of you who follow my work may know that I've blogged extensively about my experiences living with and recovering from SIBO. And in fact, it's become one of the main reasons that people find my blog or website in the first place. As you'll learn from my interview with Dr. Kimball, SIBO is a relatively uh, new diagnosis. Um, It's currently being researched and it's not super, super well known in the medical field. And so uh, I see so many people struggling to get good care around it and that's part of the reason i started the blog is uh the blog of my experience was that i spent over a year with SIBO before it was correctly diagnosed you can read about my whole experience with SIBO i think i have nine or ten posts Uh, on my blog. If you go to sensitivityuncensored.com, click the link to my blog and then search under the category for SIBO. Basically what you'll find is that uh, I started having, I had a series of um, I think urinary tract infections that kind of set me off that were then followed up by a A long time of chronic yeast infection which I had never had before in my life and then beyond that my digestion became really messed up and the main symptom that I had with my digestion was bloating like incredibly painful noticeable bloating Elimination had been variable for a long time, so I don't know that I was as tuned into that, although as an Ayurvedic practitioner, we're always looking at poop. (laughs) Um, But for the most part, the thing that I noticed was that, you know, my pants fit in the morning and they didn't fit in the afternoon, and it was incredibly painful and um, really um, a really challenging thing to live with. And the thing that was the trickiest for me was that I would feel fine when I ate. And so it was really difficult to tie my symptoms to food because when the time that I actually started feeling bad was an hour or two after I ate. So I'd feel great after I ate, and about an hour or two later, I would feel like I had just eaten like the biggest meal of my life. It was terrible. So I went to, a couple different doctors and they spent a lot of time treating me for candida and when then it, during that treatment I heard uh, or let's see I, I went to a a body worker and it described some of my symptoms and she said you know you might want to look into or get tested for this SIBO the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and when I took that information to my doctor she said no nope, I don't think we're there yet and So I continued with her plan for another couple of months and then realized it was just time to switch doctors. And so I did that and (laughs) you can continue reading it, but basically it took me finding Dr. Kimball, somebody who was really, really up to date on the research with SIBO um, to where I could finally, finally get relief. If you've ever studied with me in a pro- in any of my programs for highly sensitive people or intuitives, you'll see that there is research out there or it, I don't know that it's so much formal research, but there's a lot of corollary between high sensitivity and irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO. So in my office, I see a lot of people coming in saying, "I've got the these digestive issues, these are my symptoms." And having dealt with SIBO for so long um, and using my clairvoyance to look at it, look at the energy of SIBO, I'm, I'm fairly good... At being able to read the energy around it and be able to recommend when somebody might want to be tested for it. Of course, I'm not a medical doctor and I don't do diagnoses, um, but I'm pretty good at being able to recommend a next step in terms of medical things. And you might have noticed that in, I think it was episode 13 where I gave a reading on the air. So I'm really, really excited for this conversation. Before we dive in, I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters. Um, It's been so nice to see your support coming in. It really demonstrates that you enjoy the show and you want to see it continue. And uh, after the interview with Dr. Kimball, she's got a really, really great resource that's going to be available on Patreon at the $2 a month level or greater. And if If you like this podcast and would like to support it, you can support it at patreon.com forward slash sensitivity uncensored. All right, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sabrina Kimball. She is a licensed naturopathic physician and acupuncturist practicing in Seattle, Washington. She specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of digestive issues, including irritable bowel syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, hormonal imbalances, as well as primary care medicine. Hi, Dr. Kimball. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am really excited to be having this conversation because it's something that I get probably the most questions on in my, uh, in my blog and my website, even though I am by no means a specialist. <laughs> I just see that it's something that uh, so many people have questions about and, um, and a lot of my clients, a lot of my highly sensitive clients start to develop these issues in their gut. So I'm really happy that we're here talking about SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Yes. So one of the areas you specialize in, Dr. Kimball, is is treating this condition. So can you tell us about how you got drawn in this direction? Sure. Happy to. Uh, I first learned about SIBO probably about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, And I was looking for some
1: more answers for a lot of patients I was working with that had IBS symptoms, um, irritable bowel syndrome, that that weren't getting better with kind of my usual, you know, treatments. Um, These are people that had, you know, kind of an odd bloating pattern that tend to be worse as as they went on. These are people that worsened on probiotics, um, which is not necessarily common with a lot of gut issues. Usually things improve. Um, And they also had an odd list of foods that they were reacting to that would normally be considered kind of, um, in most medical fields, kind of hypoallergenic foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so once I kind of learned about SIBO that I started doing a lot more research um, and learning more about it uh, because it is a really complex condition. And because of that, I have been treating it for at least seven years um, and really finding um, a lot of relief for some of my patients based upon the treatments that I've been able to employ.
0: Yeah, you absolutely have. I came to you, I think for the first time with SIBO was the original reason that I started seeing you um, as my doctor, and you were the third doctor that I had come to to treat SIBO. I was just getting really poor results um, with the people that I had been to before, Um, and I see this with people who come to me where they've tried several doctors or their doctor won't even test them for it or doesn't even think it exists which is just like, that kind of blows my mind. Um, and so I just see that there's a lot of patients being overtreated, undertreated, uh, and they're frustrated. So can you talk about this pattern? Like, you know, what is going on in the medical community with SIBO?
1: Sure. I mean, the the biggest thing with, with SIBO is it's a, it's a newer diagnosis um, and new diagnoses in medicine, meaning this has been around officially found um, by Mark Pimentel and his group at Cedars-Sinai probably about 15 years ago, if memory serves. Um, And that is a new diagnosis when it comes to medicine. Um, Medicine, um, to its credit, is slow to make changes, but also to its fault. And because of that, there's a lot of doctors, gastroenterologists even, that don't really understand what SIBO is or don't think it actually exists. Um, and um, and that's tricky for patients to navigate, right, because you have to spend a lot of time being your own advocate and saying, like, look, I've done my own research, and and, and I, I think this is what I have, and if the doctor doesn't know about that condition, oftentimes um, the patient just gets told, well, you know, well, that's, that's not a thing, so you should just <laughs> deal with your condition and kind of move on, um, but um, I do see a lot of patients for, um, you know, second and third opinions on SIBO. And um, SIBO, in my opinion, is a specialty and and kind of needs to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of doctors out there that aren't doing this maliciously, but they they don't know a lot about SIBO. um, And they're they're trying to do a good service to their patients and they're trying to treat it. Um, But if you're not, in my opinion, up on the current research and what SIBO is and how to effectively treat all of its parts, Um, patients are going to relapse really quickly. and, um, And that is unfortunately very frustrating for them. They feel like they're never gonna get better. It's also very expensive and time consuming. Um, I see a lot of patients that have been on multiple different diets um, to try to address the SIBO. some of which are overlapping diets, um, which I find commonly makes people um, on a really restricted diet that's, that, that is not only anxiety producing, but it also makes them drop weight rapidly. Um, and so a lot of people just get really frustrated and feel like they're never going to get better. Um, and um, and it's, it's because of the name SIBO that might actually be part of the problem that everyone focuses on treating the
0: bacteria. Um, but that's yes. a
1: cause, which we'll get to.
0: Yes. Yes. We're definitely going to talk about that. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, that was my experience. I had been on all kinds of different diets, you know, by these other two practitioners who had taught me, they were overlapping diets. I was super confused. Like there came times where I was like, well, this diet says I can't eat this. This diet says I can. So how much do I want it? You know, it just, it just felt like a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was, it was such a relief to find someone like you who specializes in this and could, um, you know, really walk me through my individualized treatment. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So let's cover the basics. What is SIBO?
1: SIBO, so the the definition of SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, And what that essentially means is your large intestine um, is supposed to be filled with bacteria. Um, those bacteria do everything from balance our mood, to help us make vitamins, to, to process our food, um, all sorts of different things. Um, but your lar- your small intestine is supposed to be basically sterile. There's really not supposed to be much bacteria in there at all. Um, and so some things go awry, um, and that allows bacteria from the large intestine to grow into the small intestine. And that creates a lot of the symptoms that go along with SIBO that make people really uncomfortable. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to those things need to go awry for that to happen in the first place.
0: Yes. And so how then is SIBO related to IBS or irritable bowel syndrome?
1: Yeah, SIBO can take place with IBS or without. Um, so commonly when I'm referring to IBS, especially when I'm in, in treatment visits and those sort of things, I say IBS with SIBO to kind of make things clear because not all IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, is, has SIBO as well, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, but they do commonly coincide. Um, a few other things can come can coincide with SIBO as well: um, celiac disease, um, inflammatory bowel diseases, um, history of um, abdominal surgeries, and those kinds of things um, can sometimes trigger SIBO, um, and that will kind of be classified as IBS, which has always been this kind of overarching. We don't really know why you're having these digestive issues, but you have them. Please go home. Don't be stressed and avoid these couple of foods, and hopefully you do okay. Um, which was kind of always what IBS was in the past. Um, And unfortunately, that didn't really work for people. Um, And the great thing about IBS with SIBO, if it is present, and if we, if we get the SIBO under control and, and do the other corrective measures that we need to, we can actually make the IBS go into um, kind of remission um, for whatever period of time
0: that we get. And we'll talk about that piece too. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the different kinds of SIBO because SIBO is not just, you know, one thing, kind of like IBS. There's an, um, it's a little bit of an umbrella term. So can you get specific about that?
1: Sure. Um, so SIBO, uh, it's, it's the overgrowth of Certain types of bacteria that are in the small intestine that shouldn't be. Um, And those bacteria all create gases, which can create some of the cardinal signs of SIBO um, and and kind of IBS as well. So um, there can be an overgrowth of bacteria that produce hydrogen. Um, These are people that commonly have more of a diarrhea pattern as far as their bowel habits go. Um, Then there's also people that have an overgrowth of methane. This tends to be more constipating. Methane itself is constipating. Um, And then there's also a third type, which is a little more difficult to diagnose because there's no great test for it. It's being developed, thankfully, but, um, but it's a little trickier to find out. And this is hydrogen sulfide producing folks. Um, And um, you can have a mix of all three, which also makes things tricky. So some people kind of vacillate between diarrhea and constipation and all of that. Um, But the cardinal sign of the hydrogen sulfide producing folks are, this is kind of a funny question that I ask people. I do a lot of talking about, you know, gas and, and bowel movements in my practices, I need to. But hydrogen sulfide, these are the people that create a lot of foul smelling gas. The main question I ask is, when you pass gas, do you feel like you want to leave the room? Because that would be a hydrogen sulfide producing person versus somebody who's producing hydrogen messing, methane, where it's just kind of the usual, it doesn't smell great, but it's not terrible kind of gas.
0: Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. So yeah, let's talk about some of these symptoms of SIBO. And, and you know, I'm happy to drop in my own experience here, but let's hear from you first. You know, When people come to you, what are they experiencing?
1: Um, the main pattern that I start to wonder about SIBO and those kinds of things with people is um, is their bloating pattern. Um, and um, if somebody comes to me and they have a lot of the signs of kind of IBS, but there's no bloating, I, I question if SIBO is present because it's almost always there. Um, and typically what will happen is the bloating will either be markedly worse after meals, um, but most often it's worse as the day goes on um, as gas starts to kind of build up in the system and it's not passing the way that it needs to. Um, some people also have a lot of burping and belching um, after meals. Um, that can be pretty common as well. Um, and then there's a pattern of you know, chronic diarrhea, loose stools, incomplete stools, so you just don't feel like you got everything out, um, or constipation. And, and the true medical definition of constipation is um, you're going, you know, three days between bowel movements. So a lot of people tell me they feel constipated, but it just means that they didn't feel like they got everything out um, or any mixture thereof. So, um, so really, um, and it doesn't have to be daily diarrhea or, or daily constipation, but um, kind of the definition with IBS is at least to be present at least um, three days out of the month, and it has to be present for, for a certain period of time. Um, so this isn't somebody who, you know, um, not to pick on any countries, but, you know, went to Mexico and um, came back with, you know, diarrhea and they have it for a few days that wouldn't be this that would be um you know more um travelers diarrhea those kinds of things this is a chronic condition that's been going on for a while
0: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i know that when i developed sibo it i developed a bunch of different symptoms with it and we can kind of cover this a little bit later but um I seemed to have excess yeast, so I, I started getting like excess yeast infections, and I'd had like a couple of urinary tract infections, and so things kind of started vaginally for me, and then, um, and then in my gut. The, the bloating and for me I didn't really recognize it as bloating because I associated bloating with gas that you pass mm-hmm. right and so for me um, it, it just I felt so heavy about an hour or so after a meal it's like I felt heavy and my stomach would get really distended and I used to joke with my husband that at night I looked really pregnant <laughs> You know, and it was like, it was like at night, I mean, he would be able to see it. My stomach was so distended because of the bloating and I would feel a lot better in the morning, you know, after a really long fast. Um, And I I stopped for me with SIBO, I really lost my appetite. Mm -hmm. You know, I I wasn't really hungry and I was really, I'd I'd get kind of almost nervous to eat because I didn't feel bad while I ate, Mm -hmm. but it's like, I never knew what was coming. Right. Afterwards, you, know. you never know
1: if that food's going to work okay with you today or not work okay with you today. Yeah. Yes. And bloating is. I mean, it's part gas certainly, but it's also part water retention um, due to inflammation. Um, so some people, the one of the main things people will tell me is, you know, I don't fit in my pants at the end of the day. Like I'm fine in the morning. Um, and then after lunchtime, things just start to get a little iffy. And then by the time I get home, or even sometimes on my drive home, I'm un- unbuttoning my pants because things are actually so um, so sort distended of in there. Okay. Um, and that's just that backup of all that gas, and then the the certain level of inflammation that ensues because of all that too.
0: Absolutely. And that became, we'll talk about this later too, but that became something that was tricky for me to uh, figure out during the, the treatment process is like, wait, is this SIBO coming back or is this just inflammation because there's some irritation? And, mm-hmm. and you were really helpful in helping me discern between uh, the two different things. So mm-hmm. how, how does SIBO, how does somebody develop SIBO?
1: Well, SIBO can develop for a lot of reasons. Um, um, And it depends on the type of SIBO or the type of SIBO or IBS or their stools that they have. Um, So uh, there's three different types of IBS. Um, There's diarrhea type. These are people that really can't keep anything in for the life of them. Um, There's mixed type, um, which is these are the people that will either have loose stools that are kind of ongoing or or they'll go back and forth between diarrhea and constipation. Um, and then there's constipation type um uh and the etiology of of diarrhea and mixed type are the same actually it's it usually is triggered by um some sort of a foodborne illness um that creates this whole um, this whole cascade of, of issues um that ultimately affects how the bowels move and all those sorts of things um and then constipation type is different um and that one's We're still studying we, the royal we. A lot of research is being done at Cedar Sinai down in um, California, trying to figure out kind of what's going on there. But that's a bloom of a bacteria called um, M. smithii. And that bacteria will bloom. We don't exactly know why yet, but hopefully we'll know more in the next couple of years. Um, That's the plan. Um, And that triggers things to kind of slow down in the gut. Um, But other things that can trigger SIBO are um, abdominal surgeries. Um, um, We talked about, um, you know, um, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, disease, colitis, those kinds of things, but also celiac disease. Um, This can be concomitant with that. Um, I've also seen untreated thyroid disorders um, kind of lead to this because it does affect the motion of the gut. So if somebody's hypothyroid and then their Mm. gut's not moving very fast, that can also cause some of these things. But there also is a correlation um, and we don't necessarily know, correlation causation are not necessarily the same thing, but um, people with some disordered eating that also affects the microbiome and how the gut moves and that can affect things as well. Um, and that's not to make people that have these conditions feel bad, um, but um, but I do see it quite often that that can be something in somebody's history. So.
0: You know, that's really interesting. I think I just saw an email pop up about like a SIBO symposium or or something like that, where that is one of the main talks going on about how disordered eating can, in some cases, lead to cases of SIBO. And um, in a previous podcast, I was talking to an eating disorder specialist, and I've had an eating disorder in my past, and um, I kind of went, huh, you know, really interesting. I hadn't even, you know, made that connection mm-hmm. uh, for myself. So let's walk through the, the, like the pathology of SIBO. Um, Cause what you're saying here about um, bacteria builds up and it affects the, you know, how the, the bowels move. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about um you know, what SIBO does, and I think the most common issue is is that people think it's, oh, the bacterial overgrowth, and once you just kill the bacteria, then, like, everything's fine. Um, right. So can yeah. you speak to that? Yeah. Absolutely. Um Yeah.
1: So um, so this is where I get real real deep in the science, so so bear with me. Um, <laughs> um, so the, the, we talked about how there's the different types of kind of IBS, the, the diarrhea and the mixed type, um, and, um, and those that are kind of due to food poisoning and those kinds of things. Um, so ultimately, what happens with somebody who has diarrhea and mixed type, and we'll talk about constipation type in a second, um, but diarrhea and mixed type, these are people who um, probably at some point in their lives had some sort of a foodborne illness. This, this could have been even been diarrhea and vomiting that only lasted for 24 hours, or or diarrhea lasted for 24 hours, or just vomiting lasted for 24 hours. So it's not always um, etched in somebody's brain exactly when this began. Um, but certainly I have a lot of people that have come back from lovely places like Thailand and said, you know, I haven't been the same since after, you know, I, I had this illness when I was there. But um, but there's a few main things that will infect the gut that will kind of create this whole cascade that can cause issues. Um, some of those things are um, the pathogenic form E. coli. So this is the kind that's you know not supposed to be in our food supply. Uh, Campylobacter, which is on 80% of all the chicken in the United States. Salmonella, also usually associated with chicken, but I mean it's it's undercooked chicken, right? Where mm. you get all these kinds of things. Um, and then the, another one is norovirus, which is exceptionally mm. common. We currently have an outbreak in the Seattle area right now, um, and we do most years. <laughs> um, yes, and that'll be kind of diarrhea and vomiting that'll last for 24 to 72 hours, somewhere kind mm-hmm. of in there. Um, but when these things infect your gut, um, they create something called a CDTB toxin. It's a cytotoxin and this triggers your immune system, um, which normally would be fine. Normally we want a toxin to trigger the immune system and the immune system should then make the appropriate antibody and things settle down. However, um, this triggers your body to make something called an anti-vinculin antibody. This antibody unfortunately misfires and damages the pacemaker cells of the gut. These are called the interstitial cells of Cajal. Um, and they make up the migrating motor complex of your gut. Um, so a so basically, your gut is supposed to clean itself out between meals. It's supposed to clean itself out while you're sleeping. You're not supposed to have food sitting in your small intestine in between meals. That really shouldn't be going on. Large intestine, whole different scenario. Things just sit there, dehydrate, do all the things you're supposed to do. Um, so when we get a damage of this, this these pacemaker cells of the gut, um, then things don't move properly. Um, that also can affect the ileocecal valve, which is a valve that regulates in between the large intestine and small intestine. And this can allow bacteria from the large intestine to grow into the what should be sterile small intestine. So now we have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because we have a food supply sitting in the small intestine and we have the bacteria now feeding on that food supply. And then now you're bloated at the end of the day, um, you're belching after meals, um, you don't have much of an appetite and your bowel habits are now completely not what they were before. Um, so that leads to kind of all of that. Um, and so that that leads us back to the thing that we'll talk about a little bit more, but really it's the damage of that gut movement that's the underlying cause of the SIBO. And if that is not addressed as far as treatment goes, the person's gonna keep relapsing. Because if you knock down the bacteria, but you don't fix that motility issue, it's just gonna keep coming back and coming back. And that's where patients can get really frustrated if that part isn't addressed. Um, With with the constipation type and all of that, that's that bloom of that M. Smithii bacteria that I just spoke about. We don't really know why that bacteria likes to bloom. Um, The interesting thing about that bacteria is this is not a good bacterial setup if you live in the Western world um, because this causes your gut motility to slow down um, so if you have a readily available food supply full of you know refined grains and carbohydrates and everything's cooked and easy to assimilate, then then this doesn't work very well. Um, if you lived in sub-Saharan Africa where you were foraging for your food um, and you were eating really dense tubers and those kinds of things, this would be actually a fantastic thing to have because we want bowel motility to be slower um, so you can absorb all of those nutrients. So so specifically, this is a this is a kind of a a type of bacteria that would be helpful in other parts of the world,
0: but, um, but with our food supply, it doesn't play very well together. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, and one question that I, I get, um, it, it comes in the comments section of my blog and that I get asked all the time on my website is, you know, I took the antibiotics and I, now I feel terrible. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was like, okay, well, Who's the doctor that you're working with? You know what have they told you about? Um, you know your treatment plan, and you know kind of like we said earlier, oftentimes it's like that was the treatment plan. <laughs> you know, um, so so okay. So let's say uh, we've been diagnosed with SIBO then. Mm-hmm. Okay, what does treatment usually look like, and what do what do people need to prepare themselves for mentally? Um, well, the
1: treatment will completely depend on um, the gas levels um, when they've been tested, at least um, in my practice. So mm-hmm. depending on if somebody has a low level of the gases versus if they have very high levels of the gases, how long something has been there, all this kind of affects how I would kind of go about treating somebody. Um, but um, people need to be prepared, um, at least in my practice, um, prepared for you know, a four to six month treatment plan, at least to start with. Um, And that's even if we're retreating, um, because there's a certain level of, uh, we're going to be using something to eradicate the bacteria for anywhere from two weeks to three months, depending on what we're doing. Um, And so that's the first part of the treatment phase. That's kind of where we kind of want to eradicate things and return that small intestine to its kind of proper sterility the way it's supposed to be. Um, But then there's a 90-day gut healing phase, um, which isn't super complicated. It's just, we use an appropriate food plan to help that recover. Um, We use a few things just to help the gut, you know, heal a little bit faster, but it it truly takes 90 days for for most of the cells in the gut to actually replace themselves. Um, Your gut is rapidly replacing itself just because of all the things it comes in contact with on a regular basis. And because of that, we need to have a longer treatment plan to allow that time to heal. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, we're restoring that motility and making sure that things are working properly. Um, and we're, we're checking in at appropriate intervals, um, not super often, but just often enough to make sure that things are going okay. Um, and then at the end of that treatment plan, that's where we're trying to um, put you know, foods back in. In a way that we now understand what foods you might need to watch out for ongoing, but but not necessarily right now. Um, and then my goal is to always return people to normal life as as you know as soon as possible, but also at an appropriate time so we don't quickly relapse. So so that's kind of what treatment plans look like. Um, people with diarrhea and mixed type tend to respond. More rapidly to treatment, um, they may respond to maybe one or two rounds of treatment. Not always. The human body is a tricky place, um, but um, people with constipation type should be prepared for possibly a longer treatment plan because it is much more stubborn to treat. Um,
0: mm-hmm. There's a lot
1: of other factors that go in with kind of constipation type IBS with SIBO, um, and um, it's it's complicated by the fact that that um, M. smithii bacteria. Um, create something called uh, a biofilm, which is basically think about it as a bacterial force field. If I can borrow from <laughs> Star Trek. Oh yeah, uh, it's a really hard wall to break through, um, and so we need to do some things to kind of break that up. And um, and sometimes even pelvic floor physical therapy is required to make sure they can eliminate properly. There there can be some some other pieces that we have to bring into place um, with constipation types. That's a little bit longer, but um, mm-hmm. but on the short end of things, um, yeah, four to six months is what people should prepare for.
0: Okay. And I I feel like I I missed something here. So let's just quickly jump. I want to talk about the diet, but I want to jump back and say, what does testing for SIBO look like?
1: Oh, sure. Um, So the gold standard test for testing for SIBO is something we can't do Um, in a a, a reasonable setting, which is um, it's it's a needle biopsy of different parts of your small intestine, and then we culture the bacteria to see what's going on. I know no doctor that's doing this. Um, It's used in research settings only um, because it's horribly invasive and time-consuming and cost prohibitive. Um, So the best test that we have is something called a lactulose breath test and um, lactulose is um, the sugar that we have people drink or this um, sugar alcohol that we have people drink um, that's fantastic food for that bacteria. Um, So it kind of fluffs it up um, while we're trying to do testing and it it makes them produce the gases. Um, So what that testing looks like, and this can either be done in a clinic setting or it can be done at home. Um, I usually order the test kit and have people do it in the comfort of their own home. Um, and just have it mailed to them. Um, but you have to do kind of an odd diet for basically the day before, um, where you can eat a really minimal diet, meaning you can have some proteins and and some simple starches and that's all.
0: I think I remember um, it was like rice and chicken, like white bread. Yeah. Rice so it's like, it's like chicken or fish, um, yeah. really just like
1: maybe a little bit of oil, some salt, um, yeah. and um, and it, white bread if they're not gluten intolerant or wheat intolerant, um, mm-hmm. white rice and, and white potatoes, which yeah. is a really weird diet for me to tell somebody to eat even for 24 hours, but, but it's necessary because I don't want them eating, for example, a boatload of Brussels sprouts that would cause a lot of gas that would last for 24 hours and then it could upset the test. And so mm-hmm. it really kind of just makes sure there's nothing fermentable, but it gives you enough nutrition that you can get through your day. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you fast for 12 hours. You can have only water during that time. And then I always say, get up in the morning, then you're going to start the test and the test is going to take three hours. Um, So I also say, save your favorite TV shows or your favorite movie and and just sit there and and do your thing. And um, you're going to blow your breath into Um, these little collection tubes every 20 minutes for three hours. And that's going to collect those gases. And the reason why this works because is like, well, how does your breath affect? How does that do with your gut bacteria? Basically, when your body's producing excess gases in your blood or in your gut, it'll diffuse into your bloodstream. And that then goes to your lungs and it's breathed out. Um, So this is the best test that we have. And I do get good results using this test um, to give me an idea of where we are. Because depending on if we have hydrogen, methane, or what I suspect to be hydrogen sulfide, Overgrowth, the treatment is different, and depending on the levels of those gases, I also know where I should start. Um, So, somebody has really, really high methane levels. I'm going to consider other treatments first rather than kind of maybe you know a two week course of antibiotics.
0: Totally, I think that that's that's one of the things that I was so grateful for when I came to you. Is I brought you know my test results that I had taken several months ago, and I had been doing an herbal treatment. uh, to, for the eradication phase, and you, know, you took one look at my, re- te- my test results, and, <laughs> and you have kind of said, I got to be honest if you're to stay on this course, it's gonna take about five years you know, to, to eradicate. So I'm gonna suggest something else. And I, I love that. It was the first time someone was really straight with me. Um, part of my frustration uh, working with the doctors I did previously was they, they left a lot up to me. They said, well, we could do this or we could do this. And in some situations, I appreciate that, absolutely. But it was really nice to have somebody who is really experienced say, here's really what I recommend based on what I'm seeing and the research that I know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the other piece that we mentioned earlier was there's a lot of uh, dietary recommendations, different diets recommended to treat this. Um, and I think I said before, I think I was on a, actually on a mixture of three diets, if I remember right now. I think it was a combination of like a candida diet, because I thought I had candida for a while, mixed with the specific carbohydrate diet, mixed with the low FODMAP diet, which is like, basically means you can eat like nothing. Carrots. Carrots. Yeah, right. Exactly. Carrots, you know, but only steamed, you know, right. Like, right? So, <laughs> and I mean, I got, yeah. And I, and I really see afterwards how that set me back. So let's talk about, about the real research dietary recommendations.
1: Sure. Um, there's only one diet that's actually been researched to be beneficial in IBS and, and SIBO. Um, which is the low FODMAP diet. Um, This was developed by Monash University in Australia um, and they are still currently doing research, which is great. Um, So they're they're testing foods, they're retesting foods for their FODMAP content. And what FODMAPs are, because FODMAP sounds like a weird word, but basically what it is, is it's fermentable disaccharides, which is, those are two sugars that are bound together. Um, and those, if you're not absorbing well and all the above, um, they're, they're very, very easily fermented and they're fantastic food for the bacteria in the small intestine that shouldn't be there. Um, so people that are on a low FODMAP diet and people that are, have IBS and SIBO, they can have monosaccharides. So maple syrup, um, white sugar, some brown sugar, and those should be readily absorbed and and easy to work with. Um, People that are consuming honey, um, which is gonna contain some disaccharides, lactose, those kinds of things, um, these are gonna be harder to digest because you actually need enzymes to break those bonds between those two sugars apart so then you can readily absorb them. Um, so that's why I use a low FODMAP diet, because it actually does work for people. I don't combine it with other diets, because then people don't eat enough, and they lose weight, and they get really frustrated, and they also have no idea what to eat, which is never a place I want any of my patients to be living in, um, and so some of the other diets people will use um, are, you know, they've, they um, a GAPS diet, um, they'll use a specific carbohydrate diet. Um, unfortunately, both of those still contain reasonable amounts of FODMAPs and people aren't going to feel better um, during those treatments. Um, and I prefer to not use those. There's another diet called um, um, kind of like the, the SIBO diet, which is basically a, that's created by another doctor um, that is a combination between the specific carbohydrate diet and, um, and a low FODMAP diet. And um, I just have a lot of people come to me for second opinions and they've, they've lost 10 to 15 pounds They're not absorbing well. Um, and, um, and by putting them on a low FODMAP diet, they actually feel much more control of their food and they start getting weight, or at least their weight stabilizes. Yeah. Um, so I prefer not to use that diet either because um, there's, there's no research supporting those other diets.
0: Yeah, I remember coming off of the the three mixed diets when you just said, oh, no, it's just a low FODMAP diet. It felt like my whole world opened up. And, you know, the thing that was, I thought, you know, really interesting is some of the things that were um, allowable for me to have at that time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the university was doing more research on them. And you'd call me and say, like, actually, let's stop with the almonds. Actually, let's stop, you know, mm-hmm. because we've got new research on it. So that was just really Kind of comforting to know that we weren't uh, just shooting in the dark. That there, there are you know people doing a lot of research. Mm -hmm. So something else that I've noticed in my practice, um, I get a lot of highly sensitive people who have gut issues. A lot of highly sensitive people who have SIBO, um, and sometimes they're working to treat their SIBO with this you know kind of restricted diet, having a history of uh, disordered eating. And that can be really, really tricky, particularly if there is a binge eating um, problem and restrictions are kind of triggering. So do you have any advice for that?
1: Yeah, the main thing when I'm working with any patient with with disordered eating is I want to make sure they're not in an active disordered eating phase, because um, mm-hmm. that is not a place where you want to put something on a restrictive diet. Um, they're already trying to get control of their life through food, and this is not going to make them feel better. So number one, I always want to make sure that somebody's in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel solid about being able to do a diet that does have restrictions within it um, because it's important that they feel supported and empowered in the food that they're eating. Um, I do find with with most people, if, they, if they're in recovery, that we can do a low FODMAP diet with, with all of those proper discussions and, and all of the information that they need. Um, and they usually do well. I do always ask them if, they start, if they're starting to feel triggered by the food plan that they need to they need to tell me. Um, they need to tell me, or if some, some of my patients also choose to work with a dietitian or a nutritionist, um, that they need to be talking to them um, about those things. Because in some cases, um, I can modify the diet slightly to make them feel more empowered and more in control about what they're eating. Um, so, it's, so it's less triggering for them. And that's an important thing that we need to be just cautious of. And so I just have a really frank, open conversation about it, saying that if you're starting to feel like things are getting out of control, I need you to tell me um, so, we can, so we can make some modifications if need be, and that's sometimes where um, if there's um, a food that never tended to cause them problems before. We might add it in sooner, so they feel like they have more control over things. Um, or sometimes we just have a conversation about it and just make sure they have proper support. Um, maybe have them go back and, you know, if they have a therapist and start to work through some things, with their therapist, um, and, and start to process some of that. Um, and I always just remind them, this is temporary. The food plan is really designed only to be for 90 days. This is not a lifelong diet. Um, and that usually helps calm down some of their, their worries as well.
0: Totally. I mean, it, and it is, you know, I think for, for people who aren't used to being on some sort of modified diet because of food sensitivities, low FODMAP can feel really restrictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I get questions about on my blog is, you know, there's, there's not a lot of options for vegetarians and vegans. So how, how do you approach um, uh, recovery for those folks? Sure. I mean, it's when,
1: whenever we're combining diets, it gets tricky, right? Yeah. So if we're combining a low FODMAP diet with a vegetarian or vegan diet, it just, it's trickier. Um, and, um, we just, we have a frank conversation about how on a low FODMAP diet, a lot of beans, legumes are restricted. A lot of nuts are restricted because of their, um, disaccharide content, which has been their cardinal protein sources. Um, this is where, um, We, protein powders um, can be beneficial. Um, We'll we'll use specific protein powders. Sometimes we'll do kind of more protein shakes to make sure they're just getting adequate proteins in because those are, their main protein sources are restricted. Um, But it can be done. Um, There are certain types of tofu and those kinds of things that are okay. Um, But, um, and then I've also had some vegetarian, somebody's vegetarian. I mean, they can, if they're lacto-ovo vegetarian, meaning that they can do some, you know, dairy products and they can do some eggs, they usually do just fine. Um, Somebody's vegan, things are definitely just a little bit trickier. Um, but it's not impossible to do. Um, and I have had some people and I never, if somebody is, is attached to their food plan for whatever reasons that they are, I'm never saying, well, I need to just start eating meat. But I have had some patients that have also made the choice to temporarily add in um, eggs if they weren't previously eating them or, or fish if they weren't previously eating them. And that does make things a little more comfortable. Um, and then if they want to return to kind of a, more of a vegetarian or vegan diet afterwards, they do. And so that's, that's just a conversation that we have and it's, and it's always up to everybody. I'm supportive of whatever people are doing as far as their food plan goes.
0: That's great. And I mean, and just kind of what I'm hearing and through my experience, having support, like having somebody who's got your back and can guide you through this is so incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, knowing that you are my third doctor, I just, I just really recommend that, you know, anyone who's listening, if you're going through this, you know, continue to find, you know, continue to look. And I mean, I know it sucks to have to advocate for yourself, but you've got to find somebody who can walk you through this. It's, it's Mm -hmm. Um, really, I found it to be really incredibly important um, during the different phases of rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, you kind of mentioned, um, uh, you know, we talked about there's this eradication phase, and then there's this gut rehabilitation phase. And I remember you kind of explaining the different phases of healing um, to me when I started. So can you talk about those phases a little bit more specifically? Sure, and the eradication phase
1: is is trying to return that small intestine to its its more sterile state, so mm-hmm. that's using whatever we are using, which there are a myriad of options, um, either be that you know antibiotics, be that um, herbs that can work as kind of what some people call an herbal antibiotic um, or um, in some cases even um, an elemental diet, um, which is a very specific diet where you just drink shakes. They're not even really shakes. You drink liquid for basically two weeks, but it gives you all the nutrition that you need, but it starves out the bacteria. I use that in more severe cases um, or people that are kind of fine with not eating because they're reacting to so many foods that being on a liquid diet sounds like a break. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are some of the things that I'll I'll sometimes use in that first eradication phase to help things kind of settle down. And then um, during the kind of rehabilitation phase, that's where we're adding in motility support, right? To circle back to the underlying cause of this problem is your gut isn't moving properly. So motility support goes into place for 90 days. So we can make sure that the gut's moving properly in between meals. And there's a a bunch of different things that we use for this. Anything from um, low dose antibiotics, low dose other medications, some supplements can also do this as well. Um, So I also kind of talk to people about where, where they are with those things, what sounds best to them. Um, I'm always trying to keep treatment plans also within a, you know, a reasonable cost for patients. So I'm keeping those things in mind as well. Mm -hmm. Also drug allergy history and all that. Um, and, um, also I also do digestive enzyme support during that time, just because your gut has been off track for a while Um, and doing a little bit of support just for proper digestion can really help the GI tract rest a little bit and heal. So that um, is helpful. I usually do that for 90 days as well. And then for most people, I put them on a low FODMAP diet during that 90 day period of time as well. Um, And the trickiest thing about that rehabilitation phase is the low FODMAP diet. Um, You know, Taking some capsules after meals or taking something at bedtime or first thing in the morning when you get up, that's not the tricky part. The tricky part is a restrictive diet it's a weird list of foods, um, and to be honest, it's, it's a little socially isolating. We do a lot with food. We celebrate with food, we mourn with food, we, we deal with our bad day with food, um, and, um, and if you can't go out to some of your favorite restaurants, because they might have garlic and onions in whatever dish they have, it gets tricky. And so that's the main thing that I tell people to do a little bit of research ahead of time, gather recipes before you get started, wrap your brain around it, because um, that's the hardest part of things. But then I also give them some ideas of places you could still meet for friends, modify the food a little bit um, without having to be you know, sitting in your house cooking every single meal. So
0: yes, yes. And I mean, the things uh, besides everything you mentioned, and I think for me, if I remember that phase went on a little bit longer. We had to continue that phase. Um, It just took a little bit longer for me. And the other things that were really, really helpful for me were um, getting acupuncture with, and you do acupuncture, so I'd get acupuncture with you. But I think what was tricky for me is that um, I think I also had a little bit of an expectation that, wow, once we eradicated the bacteria, I'd feel a little better. And I felt terrible. I just felt, you know, and something that you said to me at that time was like, you know, your di- digestive tract is completely sterile. You know, you're, it's like, you're a baby, you know, you've got nothing in there. And so it really helped me to think about my system that way and think about really easily to digest foods and, and just how to kind of baby my digestive system. And then also getting a handle on inflammation. So can you explain this? Cause I know that a couple of times I came to you and I was like, I'm afraid that it's coming back again. And once you look, you know, kind of looked at my symptoms, you're like, I think this is just some inflammation, some irritation. So, you know, this might be something that other people experience. Can you explain that a bit? Sure, sure. And um,
1: yeah, you definitely need somebody that kind of knows, um, you know, what to watch out for uh, when you're going through that healing phase, because th- you are going to have a day where something just goes awry. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily, it, it does trigger panic, but it's not totally meaning that everything's going back to the way that it was, um, which is important. Yeah. And so, and, and to, to circle back and then we'll, we'll come back to the second part of the question, but um, we're the, when we use those, you know, whatever we're doing for the eradication phase, Um, We're turning that small intestine to sterility. Most of the things we're using doesn't affect the large intestine bacteria populations really at all. Research has shown that some of the things we use actually don't affect it at all, which is great. Um, But we're adjusting your gut's paradigm. (laughs) So it doesn't know where it is in space because it's been with this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth for a while. And um, and so it's when we use these antibiotics, it's not like the ones you have taken for either a sinus infection or a urinary tract infection in the past, or within 24 to 72 hours, you should be feeling loads better. Um, where some of the reactive people have, some of it's um, die off of the bacteria, which is, Um, your body's immune system can make a a slight response to kind of the the carcasses of the bacteria that we're killing. Um, So that can be part of it. But part of it is that that motility isn't quite working. Um, And so we can take out some of those bacteria that have been the only signal your gut has really had to move. And once we take that out, your body goes, wait, Wait, what are we supposed to be doing now? Um, and, um, and that takes a little bit of time to kind of even out, um, which is why I follow up with people at a very specific time after they finish that eradication phase um, to let the dust settle. Um, and um, because that, that first week after even you finish whatever we're doing for eradication, things can go a little sideways. And I just try to prepare people for that. Um, and I allow them to contact me, of course, if, if they have questions, but I just say this, that, that first week if things aren't going well, Please don't panic. It's the the second week into the kind of rehabilitation phase where you should start to get traction and start to kind of feel a little bit more like yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, you know, I noticed that when I would have those um, feelings of setbacks, mm-hmm. um, getting some acupuncture to help calm um, the inflammation down and get some digestive support was incredibly helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, getting regular um, uh, gentle motility treatments like visceral manipulation um, was incredibly helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, i trying to remember what else I did now. I think I'd give myself like real gentle, um, warm oil, belly massage mm-hmm. um, at night, uh, just kind of as a supportive thing was really helpful as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Some of the, I definitely um, it, it ask people to employ kind of whatever resonates with them right so if somebody would prefer to get um visceral manipulation versus versus reiki work versus acupuncture um In my mind they all work on similar things Mm -hmm. Um, so whatever one makes sense to you whatever one sounds best to you um that is definitely something to employ and there will be days where things just go sideways um Mm -hmm. and um sometimes i also you know tell people things go sideways here are some things you can kind of try to kind of get things to settle down but acupuncture can kind of calm down um some some bloating that has just popped up kind of out of the blue it won't solve SIBO on its own um but it can certainly calm things down Um, I sometimes also refer for pelvic floor physical therapy for some people, um, Mm -hmm. if I wonder if the pelvic floor is either too tight or too loose, um, which can affect how um, people can eliminate. That's something I think about pretty significantly as well. But visceral manipulation, I think about also if somebody has a history of um, abdominal adhesions, which is basically where tissues start to stick together, which can happen for so many different reasons. Some of it's just you've been on the planet and that's developed, but some of it's also due to um, either abdominal trauma or it can also be due to abdominal surgeries that you've had to have for various medical reasons. Um, those can also really alter that gut motility as well because if things can't move because it's being it's tied up in one spot, um, those can really help things open up quite a bit.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I pull together in one of my I guess most popular articles on my blog is this um, SIBO connection to, psoas, to the SOAS and to kind of connective tissue issues that highly sensitive people experience and how they're kind of all connected. And so, you know, it's not an article that has a lot of. Um, answers, but it creates a lot of connections um, for different, uh, different pieces in the body. Like, like you said, this adhesion piece and highly sensitive people tend to have um, higher instances of these connective tissue issues due to, like you said, various reasons, You know, just by being on the planet, being sensitive mm-hmm. um, and how that then can relate to gut health. Um, so I'll, I'll make sure to link to that here um, in the show notes. So then this last phase, right? This reintroduction of foods Mm -hmm. from the FODMAP. So let's talk about that, what that phase looks like and why, why do we want to reintroduce these foods?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, a low FODMAP diet is not meant to be lifelong. Um, it's not meant to be even years long. Um, although I do see various patients come to me that have been on a low FODMAP diet sometimes for three to five years. Um, and, uh, and what that looks, the reason why we don't want somebody on a low FODMAP diet long term is because a low FODMAP diet robs your, your large intestine of a food supply that it needs. And this is actually something called butyrate. Um, and butyrate is fantastic food for your large intestine bacteria. It helps maintain proper bacterial colonies, um, and maintains what's called your microbiome. Um, and your microbiome is supposed in your large intestine, is supposed to have a lot of redundancy to it. Um, so if one, if you eat a bunch of, I don't know, garlic one day and you kind of knock down one population of bacteria, then the other one that's not as susceptible to garlic that does the same thing should be able to kind of take over its space and all of that. So, um, so it really... Helps with kind of your gut modulating its own microbiome in the way that it needs to. Um, so when I'm putting somebody um, back on kind of FODMAPs foods, we we do a very careful reintroduction because some people react to certain categories of FODMAPs, and we need to make sure what those are. Um, and we will do this very carefully. We'll usually do one category per week and see how the body responds. If there's a little bit of bloating, that can be kind of waking up the microbiome. I'm not terribly worried about that. But if somebody tells me that they're having a reaction, like, I don't know, their their stools have gone back to diarrhea, or, um, or they're up all night because they're bloated, then that tells me they're reacting adversely to that category. And that doesn't mean they can never have that category back. It just means we're going to let things calm down, we're going to move on to the next category, we're going to see how that one goes, and, and we'll move our way through slowly. And that one they adversely reacted to, we're just going to move that out a month. Um, and they can try to get in a month; they may just need more time for those enzymes in those small intestine um, to kind of heal so they can better absorb that thing or it may be something they just need to watch out for ongoing it 's possible. but I always invite people to kind of retry that category at some point um, if it if it makes sense as far as their gut goes um, and that takes about five weeks on the quickest end um, and, um, and and then we kind of go from there and see how people kind of respond so but the the we 're trying to Get them off a low FODMAP diet, um, or at least off of um, most, um, uh, get them back on most moderate to high FODMAP foods as quickly as possible, just to kind of help with that beta rate supply.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't remember how long that phase took for me, but I remember that I responded fairly well to uh, beans and legumes um, mm-hmm. and to dairy, but you know the onions and garlic were mm-hmm. the, the real challenging for me. And I still don't eat wheat. Because um, I still have reactions um, to to wheat and gluten, um, and you know, and, and it's funny people ask people will ask me about this end phase, and and you know this, but I feel a little bit like I cheated because I got pregnant um, right at this phase where we're reintroducing foods, and I had no idea about this. But when you're pregnant, you have all this progesterone in your system, mm-hmm. and progesterone you told me acts like this um, anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I just got away with eating all these foods that <laughs> might have been harder to, um, you know, to, to have been reintroduced than they were because of all of this, um, and, you know, reduced inflammation that was happening um, in my if there's
1: any point in life you should get a get on free pass when it comes to your diet. It's definitely during pregnancy and breastfeeding,
0: <laughs> right? <So. laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I mean that that was really helpful. You know, after pregnancy was another story. Developed some more um, food sensitivities, but um, mm-hmm. that was helpful for me um, in that in that phase. So, another question that I get asked a lot is about probiotics, and mm-hmm. you know, I I really like what you said earlier about the gut microbiome being in the large intestine, because I think there is this misconception that like, well, you've just killed your, your quote unquote, good bacteria. And so you need to, or sorry, your bad bacteria and you need to replace with good bacteria. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see a lot of recommendations for probiotics. um, So I'd just like to see your take on that.
1: Yeah. And there's, uh, there's truly no right answer here, um, but I choose to not use probiotics um, during the first phase of healing um, and at least for most of the second phase because I don't want to repopulate that small intestine even with good bacteria and so I want to make sure that gut motility that movement is happening before I put probiotics in um, because I don't even I, w- I don't want to put good stuff back on the small intestine at all and really depending on the treatment plan we really haven't disrupted the microbiome in the large intestine in some cases at all um, as far as we understand um, and there's no real need to kind of fluff all the that back up. Granted, if if people have been on a restrictive diet for a long time, um, there are some people where I actually, before we start treatment, depending on how many rounds of treatment they've done with another practitioner, I might put them on a probiotic before we start treatment, just Mm. to make sure their large intestine is all, you know, happy before we start kind of going through another kill phase of things. Mm. Um, Or if there are people that I do have to treat for multiple rounds, we'll sometimes take a pause um, and do some probiotics for a month just in the meantime, before we maybe do another eradication. Um, there are some doctors um, that I do consider um, colleagues and SIBO specialists that use probiotics throughout, um, and and they claim to get good results. Um, I just prefer to at least wait until I know that people are eliminating properly and having proper bowel movements before I put it in, and I don't really see any adverse effects with that. Um, there are some patients that um, any disruption of their microbiome tr- triggers a large amount of depression or anxiety. Um, those are people where I sometimes consider actually doing a probiotic um, at some level, sometimes very specific probiotics, um, um, just to kind of maintain their mood um, during treatment. And so there's there's no part of any protocol that's not modifiable in my opinion. Um, there's things I definitely like to stick with, um, but um, depending on the person, depending on what they're presenting with, depending on what their journey has been, uh, that tells me where and when I should use probiotics or probiotic-rich
0: foods. Got it. And. So, I, you know, SIBO is often confused with other conditions, including candida. So I was treated for candida for several months. Mm-hmm. And, and when I, um, I think I went in for visceral manipulation and the, the specialist was also a, a naturopath and she said, you know, you might just want to look up this condition. Mm-hmm. And when I looked it up, I was like, this is what I have. And I took it to my doctor and she wouldn't, she wouldn't test me for it. Mm-hmm. And she was just really convinced I had candida. And, mm-hmm. and I've, seen, I've met so many other people with that story. So can you talk a little bit about this, um, how it's confused with other conditions, and then what other conditions you might see alongside of SIBO?
1: Sure. Yeah, candida, as far as intestinal candida, um, has been a diagnosis for decades. Um, and I think a lot of it probably actually is SIBO, um, but um, cause truly true intestinal candida infection um, that's diagnosable um, only occurs in really severe instances of disease. Um, so this will occur in people undergoing chemotherapy cancer treatment. This will occur in people that have um, late stage HIV. Um, and that's a true Candida infection. Candida is a type of yeast, um, and it's it's not a true infection, but it's it's opportunistic. So if your microbiome has been otherwise disrupted, um, you're supposed to have small amounts of this Candida yeast in your system. And that will overgrow and take up basically more parking spaces in the parking lot if the other bacteria aren't properly supported. Um, and so a lot of people with a history of bloating or they didn't do well with certain carbohydrates or tend to kind of not feel great on certain sugars were, were labeled by some doctors in the past as, as having candida. Um, and, um, and it's probably one of the more frustrating parts of my practice when somebody comes in, and they've been treated for candida for this really, really long time. And they've been on a ultra restrictive diet um and and really it's actually something entirely different um so there is something called so we've been talking about SIBO, which is you know the bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine but there is something that's called cfo which is fungal overgrowth in the small intestine Mm. um there is no great test for this i'll be the first one to admit it but um but it does have a very specific pattern that's slightly different than SIBO. Um, And this is most common in people that have been treated for SIBO multiple times. Um, There was never any proper probiotic use at certain points in treatment. Um, They've been on an ultra-restrictive diet for a long time. Um, I do see this with the disordered eating history in some cases as well. Um, But this pattern is slightly different from SIBO in the fact that if you have SIBO, then you should be able to have monosaccharides, right? Maple syrup small amounts of table sugar, low FODMAP fruits. So you should be fine with berries, most berries, those kinds of things, and you should be totally fine. People that come see me and say, okay, well, some of this stuff has gotten a little bit better with our SIBO treatment, but it seems like anytime I even have a little bit of these low FODMAP sugars, I tend to get more bloated or I tend to get more diarrhea um, that 's where I start to wonder if cFO is also an, an issue um, and that 's where I will use antifungals um, mild ones for the most part um, to kind of help eradicate that and it usually helps calm down that piece um, and that 's purely because their microbiome has been a bit disrupted with what 's ever caused it, um, and we and those those parking spaces need to be realigned basically. Mm. Um, and that sometimes can definitely follow an elemental diet, um, with people. So I usually do just a prophylactic antifungal treatment with an elemental diet, um, just because it's high glucose content, um, can sometimes cause that to be the case, but, um, but it's pretty common that women will have a history with either SIBO or CFO with, um, with you know cr- chronic bacterial vaginosis or yeast infections, um, and that just tells me that their their microbiome, even their large intestines, is a little bit off. Is all that really tells me? Um, mm-hmm. And once we start to get the gut to heal and kind of even out, um, usually those chronic issues start to settle down.
0: Yeah, that was exactly what happened with me. It was such a relief to mm-hmm. know that because I you know it just felt like I had been treating the wrong thing and kind of focusing on the wrong thing. And once, yeah, once things started to settle down, then all of those chronic yeast things just kind of went away. They were gone. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing I've seen is a link between SIBO and parasites. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah,
1: that's a little trickier. Um, just because man, you know, the research is still being done. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I mean, parasites, depending on the parasite, I mean, those can be a foodborne illness, right, um, to some degree, um, and that can trigger inflammation in the gut. Um, some of those parasites possibly um, could alter the, the motility of the gut and those kinds of things. Um, the main concern I have a lot of people come to me with is, you know, I've been on multiple antibiotics in my lifetime, but this caused my SIBO, and um, the answer is maybe, um, Probably not, but maybe um, that's a possibility. Um, But I also see people that have had, um, that have been on um, a class of drugs for heartburn, um, proton pump inhibitors, those sorts of things, Mm -hmm. Um, those long-term. So these would be things like omeprazole, those kinds of things. When they've been on those long term, that reduction of hydrochloric acid production, that actually can lead um, to SIBO, um, and has actually been directly linked to it. Um, so the parasite question is just—it's tough. Um, I've had a lot yeah. of people in parasites, but it's like, you know, was it the parasites that caused the problem, or is this a post-infective IBS because they also had a bacterial infection or norovirus at the same time? That right. Hot, but we're nailing away we are hammering away the parasites. So, so that's an answer we still don't quite have, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, what is the um, kind of long term prognosis? So, uh, with SIBO, like, is it a one and done? You know, again, what can people expect?
1: Sure, Um, usually not one and done. I I hope that more research will be done. We'll be able to figure that out in the future. But one and done, um, when it comes to IBS and SIBO, is is um, exceptionally rare. Let's put it that way. Um, So, my goal is to when somebody has IBS and SIBO, is to put their symptoms in remission. And I use that term carefully. Um, You know, remission is usually used in cancer treatment and those kinds of things. But basically, I'm trying to calm down their symptoms so they can live their life comfortably for as long as they get to. And then something will likely go awry at some point and they will recur. Um, That may be six months, that may be five years. It's different for everybody. Um, I see people recur, certainly if it's, if it's diarrhea and mixed type IBS, I see it three to six months after a foodborne illness. Absolutely. I will see that start to recur. Um, and um, and I just let people know that that's how things go. And then we come see me and we'll do another round of treatment and then we'll get things kind of even back out again. Um, so, so that's part of the problem. Um, and then I've also seen people recur after a massive bout of stress. I do see that quite commonly.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: that's probably tied to kind of the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic stuff in the gut and some of that dysregulation. Um, I have seen people recur. Again, we tied that. We talked about hypothyroidism. If that's you know popped up, I do see things sometimes recur. But I also just tell people sometimes things recur for no darn good reason, um, yeah. or at least for reasons we don't understand. Um, yeah. And it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. Um, it just means that you had... The results you had for as long as you had. Um, It shouldn't necessarily be something that you're having to retreat every year. Um, I do have some people where things just keep recurring for whatever reason. But whenever I'm doing another round of treatment, I'm always changing something,
0: Mm. um, trying
1: to get a better correction of that motility. I'm always adding in um, the newest research based upon the most recent symposia that I've been to. Um, um, last year is when I learned about um, the pelvic floor and how that really affects things. And so I added that into a lot of people's treatment plans of the past year and they got better resolution based upon that. So keeping up on the research um, is probably the best way I can keep helping patients and, and making sure that we get a longer lasting treatment.
0: Absolutely. You know, and speaking of research, there's a lot of information on the internet. And, you know, some of it, when I read, I'm like, where did they even get that? So, you know, when, when you, when, can you, do you have any advice for people who are, you know, trying to advocate for, them, for themselves, trying to get some answers about SIBO, you know, what should they watch out for um, in, in information? And in treatment? Sure. Um, definitely. If somebody is, is selling a one size fits all treatment plan,
1: that would be my first red flag. Um, mm-hmm. That's not going to work for everybody. Nothing works for everybody. Um, um, If the treatment plan seems cost prohibitive to you, that should also be something that might be a bit of a red flag. Um, There are some people on the internet that are charging a lot of money um, and um, putting people on what I would call a massive amount of supplements um, to try to kind of correct SIBO. um, And um, and I'm a bit wary of those practitioners. Um, There are better places to get information um, and take, and I always ask people to keep in mind if more information would be helpful to them or if it would make them more worried about their condition. So sometimes getting on the internet and doing more work, sometimes I tell people, I I, I don't say don't ever Google anything, but if you're Googling things every single night and it's making you more anxious and it's making you feel worse, Maybe we need to take a break. Um, and, uh, but I'm I'm completely fine with people doing some of their own research and asking me questions, and, and then I can say, well, that's part of it, or mm, that's not really based upon the current research; that's based upon old data. Um, and and just letting people know that, that I am approachable and they can ask me questions. Um, but there are better groups to get information from for sure.
0: Absolutely, you know, and that was I think one of the biggest uh, benefits that I received from working with you is that I you know realized right away like you know your stuff and I can trust you and I could Mm -hmm. stop, Mm -hmm. you know, stop looking and if I did come up upon something, I could ask you about it and I knew that you were up on the current research and that's just so incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. So are there any other resources that you would suggest um, for people dealing with this, either physical resources or online materials?
1: Yeah, my favorite places to actually um, get some of my information actually are um, there's two symposia that I go to every year. So kind of a review of the research. Um, um, One is I really like the SIBO symposium that's in Portland. It's at the um, National University of Naturopathic Medicine. Um, And that is open to the public. So if you're a person who likes information, um, you can sign up and you can attend. um, If you're there, come over and say hi. Um, So that's a a good place to get information. Um, And then I also really like the IBS symposium that's offered every other year um, from from the Gut Motility Clinic and Mark Pimentel and his group at uh, Cedar Sinai. Um, That's also helpful information. Um, They've changed it last year. um, So it was a little bit more patient friendly and they had more patient stories, which I thought i think was helpful for people um, and that's something that you can just simply attend in your um in your living room um, and i just you know I, I put it on my monitor and i just kind of hang out and and uh uh and and watch it and, and gather the information that i have but they do a really nice job of re- relaying all the most current research that they're doing um because it's really hard to find those papers if you're not subscribed to certain journals and all those kinds of things uh, so they're doing a really nice overview, which is very, very helpful of all the research that's being done. And they're the main place that's doing research on the actual SIBO conditions um, and that, different types of IBS. Um, I also really like for people that need resources with the low FODMAP diet, um, there's three resources that I give people. And I find if I give them those resources, they don't necessarily need to consult with a dietitian as well. Some people need more information. They want recipes. They want to be walked through. I'm happy to refer um, to have them do all those pieces or sometimes I can give them some of that information myself. Um, but that is, um, if you're going to be on a low FODMAP diet, um, you need the Menashe University app,
0: mm-hmm. the low FODMAP app.
1: Super helpful. Yep. It's about $9, which is, mm-hmm. um, $7 to $9 depending on what it is on your, you know, marketplace for your phone. Um, and, but it's, uh, they're the only, they're the only people still doing research. Um, and it is your, guide when it comes to what you can have FODMAP wise because it's in a stoplight system. So you can say this amount you can have and you shouldn't have any symptoms versus this amount you probably will have some versus we should stay away from that amount entirely. Um, And they do update it right when the research gets released. So if they, for example, they retested, you know, rice milk um, last year and suddenly rice milk was now okay. And so it was updated, um, which is helpful for people. So, you know, almond milk's okay now. They're, they're retesting things that, um, kind of can make the diet a little bit more varied, which is great. And there's two blogs, um, that I like for, for recipes and some other information. Um, Kate Scarlotta, she's a registered dietitian out of Boston. She has some nice lists for people. um, and she has some resources for some, some pre-made foods also that, um, can be helpful for people with SIBO, um, like condiments and bars Mm. and those kinds Of things. Mm -hmm. And then um, for real recipes, I really like um, a blog uh, called um, A Little Bit Yummy from um, a gal out of New Zealand um she uh she has a lot of great things she has a lot of great lists also like you know how to buy a birthday present for a person that's on the low FODMAP diet That's also a foodie and, and things like that um and oh, that's she, awesome <laughs> yeah, she has some um, some really delicious recipes um and um and so it is all based in New Zealand so the seasons will be a little bit off so she might be talking about a summer salad and it's the middle of winter here but she has a really nice um backlog of all the recipes um and she has um, a listserv that she'll send out recipes and that kind of thing um and um and she does a really nice job. And that's really helpful for a lot of people too.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think, you know, the other thing that was helpful for me is kind of like, you know, going out to restaurants, right? Like you said, we want to be social with food. And I just started having like, you know, a couple standard things. Like there were definitely restaurants I knew I would never be able to eat at, like mm-hmm. anything Italian. Let's right. just throw that out there, right? You know, <laughs> most, you know, most things, um, like any sort of Asian foods, so they're going to use onions and garlic. But, mm-hmm. you know, I could go to a pub and get a Cobb salad. You know, with uh, olive oil dressing, you know, on the side, something like that, and um, you know, uh, eggs. So many, so much eggs and zucchini. Like this is actually a running joke that I have with friends of mine on the low fodmap diet. It's like, did you have your eggs and zucchini? You know, (laughs) but you know, when you kind of find the standbys, I find that it um, it can be really helpful, and you can feel a lot more empowered. So I'm glad that now there's blogs out there with some some great yummy resources. All right, so. Dr. Kimball, for listeners who are going through SIBO, you know, what is the one thing that you would like them to know?
1: Yeah, um, I want them to know it'll take time, but it will get better. (laughs) Um, It may not be on the track that we expect in the beginning, um, but things will gradually get better over time. um, So keep at it. Um, find a provider that specializes in SIBO if you can um, and work with them um, because you'll have a bit more of a direct recovery path. Um, And if you can't find somebody who specializes in SIBO directly in your area, at least find a doctor that you can work with that hears you, listens to you, believes you, um, that's always important. I think with any doctor-patient relationship, um, and that's any doctor you have in your life. So not necessarily just somebody that's working on a specific specialty, um, you should feel like you have a good open dialogue with with that provider and that should kind of help things um, along your path. And they may be able to kind of help you find a specialist um, and and all of that. I do a lot of coordinating care between other doctors um, and I'll take the SIBO piece and and they can do the rest of their care. And we just kind of work as a team and and we, everything together. So it it takes time, but but it's, you're not going to be just uncomfortable for the rest of your life.
0: And where can listeners
1: find you? I am practicing at the University Health Clinic in Seattle, Washington. Um, It's in the Roosevelt neighborhood. Um, Our clinic will actually be moving in June. We're building a whole new clinic. Um, and we're going to be renaming ourselves um, um, Meridian Medicine at that time. So that's a bit of a scoop that hasn't been released yet. Um, and um, we're going to be located in the Northgate neighborhood on the corner of um, Northgate Way and Meridian. So that's where we'll be kind of ongoing. Um, but all of the websites and all that will, will tie things back. So it shouldn't be too hard to find me and I'm, I'm on the web.
0: Well, thank you so much for this conversation today, Dr. Kimball. I'm really appreciative. And I, I think that our listeners are going to get a lot out of it thanks for having me all right bye-bye bye-bye for information on everything shared here including show notes and links visit www.sensitivityuncensored.com forward slash soul of sensitivity